0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Julia Gossard. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Namisha Barton to discuss her recently published work, Reproductive Citizens, Gender, Immigration in the State in Modern France, 1880 to 1945. Before we jump into the conversation with Dr. Barton, I want to direct your attention to an amazing teaching tool that she has created. Dr. Barton has created a massive and impressive digital repository and essentially archive of the sources that she looked at in creating this document. For those of you who might be listening to this as part of a class or as a graduate student, This is an impressive archive of her knowledge, where she includes statistics and primary sources on the topics examined in her book, along with a description of her methodology and the different interpretations that she used. This is a teaching tool and a research tool not to be missed. For more information, please visit drnameshabarton.com backslash appendices. This is a huge benefit that she's provided and shows her commitment to diversity in education and to the larger study of gender, sexuality, women, and migration. Let's jump right into talking with Dr. Namisha Barton. Thank you so much for being with me here today, Namisha, to talk about reproductive citizens, gender, immigration, in the state in modern France. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this book. I know I've told you repeatedly how much I enjoy it, but I think that this is a work that speaks to the larger history of immigration as well as the specific French context as well. So I'm very much looking forward to our conversation.
1: Same. Thank you so much.
0: I want to start out the podcast with asking you about the inspiration for this work. It's often fun to hear about the stories that bring our authors to these subjects that they study, and oftentimes our lives are intertwined with the research that we do as historians. So I wondered if you might describe that for our listeners a little bit.
1: Sure. Well, I I think for me, it was sort of like twin narratives. So there was the one that I was aware of. And then there was the one that was the true story, if you will. (laughs) Uh, The one that I was aware of is that I had these amazing French history professors when I was in college, who really inspired me um who you know made me curious about this country that was so far away that somehow for whatever reason I could see myself the story of my family kind of projected into that faraway distant land. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think actually it's it started there. And then I have to be honest, you know, I, I went to grad school and at that point maybe I'm five or six years in. So I've done all the research and I've written half the chapters. And I look at what I've written and I was like, oh my God, it's so obvious. This is clearly the story of my family. This is my mother's story. Um, This is the story of how she immigrated to a country and the story of how she found herself kind of, you know, despite all the odds, as they say, um, integrating into, into this society, um, the mechanisms by which she was able to do so and the different agents of the state that she came into contact with along the way. Um, And I also think, that, you know, more recently, kind of as I was putting the finishing touches on the manuscript, um, I also had to kind of reckon with the fact that, you know, why is it that some immigrants um, are able to have that kind of immigrant story, that immigrant success story, um, when there are other sort of groups that will never have access to it. And that's kind of the, um, I think that that is uh, sort of the note, the, the less than hopeful note, if you will. Um, that the book sort of ends on as well. So sort of mirroring um, my own personal journey, my own identity journey in in a lot of ways. It's so interesting to
0: see how at times historians find themselves in the stories that they're writing and what they're drawn to as a research topic in the ways in which they find parallels to their Mm -hmm. own lives.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with the caveat that, you know, there are sometimes those folks who say, oh, this is me search. And it's sort of said in sort of this dismissive or casually derisive sort of way, when in fact, I think that everyone is doing me search. It's just that the relationship that some of us have to our source material and the stories that we tell is just so much more visible to ourselves and to others. Um, But in in my opinion, I think um, that that we're all doing me search in one way or another. Absolutely, I think that's
0: a really good way to think about that—that that me search in that way. This is this is a work that covers a long and pivotal moment in the history of France. You've chosen 1880 to 1945 as sort of your bookends to your study here. Yeah, um, I, I wondered why why those. What does this say in particular about the history of immigration and gender? These yeah. two bookends.
1: Well, I guess I would say, I think this is a two-parter. So the first part has to do with some of the stuff that we already know. So Mm -hmm. um, we know that the nation state is consolidating in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. And we know that it's basically a fait accompli by the end of World War II, that all of those processes, um, they pretty much wrap up and we have a, a fully solidified nation state by the end of the Second World War. And I guess I would say for me, I'm thinking that for France, this couldn't have happened at a more inopportune time. Because as I make clear throughout the book, um, you know, throughout this entire period, the birth rate is plummeting, right? Yeah. Um, so this the state is adopting all of these populationist policies, these laws, these practices, in part because they are trying to rebuild the nation. So I think the story that I'm telling here is how they they built a populationist state in order to rebuild the national community. Um, and so what I think is really interesting here is that there's this inherent tension that the French state, is going to um, be faced with that kind of all uh, modern states are faced with as well. But you just see it so much clearly in France because of their population crisis. And that that inherent tension is how are you going to draw distinctions between insiders and outsiders when you don't really have citizens to begin with or when you don't have enough citizens to begin with, right? Right. Um, So I feel like that's kind of the moment that you are seeing here. I think the second thing that I would say is I think some of the more traditional historiographical books, ends or bookend, it sort of ends at 1940, right? And so you have in the historiography, you have kind of the tale of immigration before 1940, and then the tale of immigration after 1945. The first one is a story of like white immigrants, and the second is a story of non-white immigrants. Mm -hmm. Well, for a a variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about later, um, those designations of race, religion, ethnicity, um, they're sort of softer in France during this period. Again, in part because they don't really have the luxury of of having a ton of outsiders, right? They, they need to create, uh, they need to draw more people inside this national community. So that, that um, typical criteria that nation states use, well, we don't really see that happening so much um, in France, right? Um, and so that bookend that usually sort of ends at 1940, well, if I'm going to be telling a story of how gender and sexuality was used to bring more folks inside the nation, well, then I can't really avoid World War II. And it was really David Bell um, who who reminded me of this. you know if you're going to make a case about the reproductive criteria that is used to bring folks inside the nation, then you need to put it to the test during World War II under Vichy. And it in many ways it stands up to the test and in other ways, you know you start to see a, a fraying of that criteria. Um, and that's kind of what leads into what I, hope would be um, the story of uh, immigration after World War II.
0: Yeah, I think that that's definitely very apparent. And, and I think a big contribution is, is this, this is pushing back against that traditional um, periodization where you're really bringing this into a, a new realm and a new study of, of modern France as well. I and so. I think too, what what interests me, about the building of the nation state and this idea of France doesn't have enough citizens during this period mm-hmm. is that there's also an intense bureaucracy building
1: mm-hmm. as well around sort of the categorization of citizens yes yes yeah no I I think that was um, I think that was one of the things I found so interesting like I say in the introduction like the state is not some faceless, Juggernaut. It is. Mm-hmm. It has many faces. In fact, and I think what's what's kind of fun in the book is getting to trace some of the different, like the different facets of the state, which is to say, some of the different faces of the state. Even, yeah. Um, so you see. the the police face of the state, if you will. You see the face of the state that's embodied by naturalization officers, um, by postal control, um, by social workers, both operating inside the state and outside the state and within whatever we want to call the peristate realm, right? Like there are a lot of different faces of the state. At some point, even employers are kind of playing this role as well. There have been lots of studies about how employers played a, a really important role in terms of bringing uh, you know, bringing laborers to France prior to the Second World War. Um, and so I, I think one of the things that's really interesting is, again, just just as you said, kind of almost like watching the state being built through immigrants. Um, and it's, yes. you know, in the process of centering immigrants and their lives and their stories, you kind of get to see the state being built, and this is what historian, American historian of sexuality, gender, and sexuality, Margot Canaday. This is what she calls the social history of the state, and mm-hmm. you know she was on my committee. She was one of the people who taught me how to do history, and so I don't think it's any sort of accident that that's sort of what, what I wind up producing here.
0: Well, and to me, what also one of the more interesting things is is that we see that the state takes over a lot of ownership and responsibility from social work organizations that had been previously religious mm-hmm. during yep, the 19th yep. century and how you have almost this, um, in in some ways, a secularization of the state yeah. in regards to immigration and this building of, of a French nation yeah. through those entities that had previously been religious and In a way, too, you have those organizations like the charities that you speak of that women could go to when they were pregnant or Mm -hmm. in need with small children and a single mother um, that really sought to control women's bodies. This is now being pushed over into a government agency under the umbrella of immigration.
1: Yes, 100%. I mean, I think that's the story. Um, that sort of steady sort of co-optation i mean that's kind of the story of the welfare state in mm-hmm. the west all of those terms of course problematic but um you know those are i think that is the story and i think that's exactly what you see happen during world war ii and that's that's one of those um state or bureaucratic processes that's get that gets 100 co-opted by the state right it is within the private charitable realm that so many of those services are provided. And then slowly and slowly the state begins to, uh, you know, take on some of those responsibilities as well, particularly after the First World War. And then it's really sort of the Second World War that there's this tremendous ramping up in terms of that particular, that narrative, right, um, that so many welfare historians have traced. Absolutely.
0: One of the organizations that you point to that is so pivotal in this movement of of workers and of immigrants, um, where you say that, you know, they brought over 250,000 men and up to 400,000 other people, meaning mm-hmm. their wives and their children, mm-hmm. is the Société Générale d'Immigration, mm-hmm. that Provides, I think, really interesting reflections on on what you're talking about in terms of this construction of the family, as yeah. well as construction of both masculinity and femininity during this period, as core central tenets of the French nation mm-hmm. and of immigration. Mm-hmm. And you really dive into this in chapters one and two, where we get really this understanding of how immigration immigration and gender overlap, mm-hmm. and I was struck by a statement from a pamphlet that I I believe was, was influenced or created by the Société Générale, but I could be wrong, in 1925 that, quote, women are the conservative and stabilizing element who fix the displaced races to the soil, which really reflects so much about what they thought about immigrant women during this time, which quite frankly, somewhat contrast with what I thought they would think about immigrant women during this time.
1: Yes, yes, yes. No, I, that was, um, so for any graduate students out there, I first want to say that chapter one has like 12 to 15 versions of it because I just couldn't get it right. <laughs> uh, and one of the things that was so hard about it was sort of, um, was kind of, you know, using that chapter to lay out the stakes of the entire project. And Mm -hmm. so what happens, especially in chapter one, is I'm building off of the significant historiography that folks like Noiriel and Gary Cross, like folks who were the first to write about immigration in the 80s. um, And we're looking at it primarily through the prism of capitalism and workers and who gets brought to France and for what reason and that sort of thing. But then also sort of combining it with, you know, some of the more recent um, uh, revelations of like, social, but really cultural histories around gender and, um, you know, um, mass mobility and sort of the cultural and, and, and moral fears that are elicited by those sorts of moments, particularly after the first world war, such an intense national trauma, even that language of trauma is so much owing to like, you know, the historiography of the last two to three decades. Um, and so it was, it was, you know, it's really sort of like, um, that tension again, right? So if the tension that I was describing before is like, how do you consolidate a nation state when you have no nation? to speak of right yeah. um and now the tension is okay well we've decided that we're going to we're going to Resolve this population issue um, by bringing in these outsiders, these immigrants, right? But let's be real—we're really scared about mass mobility. There's all these ways that mobility is tied to all these other cultural and moral fears, and that's very much again like an internal French story. Like just think about um, the mass migration—that's internal migration—that's been taking place throughout the 19th century, like Louis Chevalier, and it's sort of building on that sort of national tradition of. Of migration and mobility invoking all of those sorts of fears and anxieties. And so, you know, I think that that sets up the central moral dilemma that the rest of the book tries to then show how French actors are resolving that moral dilemma of, well, maybe, just maybe, we can bring in all of these workers, working men and working women, as long as we can find a way to sedentarize them, to stabilize them. And that was going to look very different when we're talking about working men versus working women. With working men, it's all about that unstable, uncontainable, untamable, you know, male sexuality that's very much classed, right? Yes. With working women, it's very much um, sort of seeing them through the prism of benevolent sexism, um, these poor women who are, you know, lost and bereft. They have no family. Who are their people? Who's going to look after them for crying out loud, right? Um, and and all up. those <laughs> sorts of, yeah, all those sorts of like moral anxieties too. Um, and so that then is going to be progressively resolved. Those those fears, those anxieties, those tensions by different actors in their interactions with uh, immigrants throughout the rest of the book.
0: And I I find what you're saying there so interesting about this construction of masculinity for these Mm. working immigrants who are coming into France. Mm -hmm. Because this idea of sort of this untamable, really almost crazy sexuality that they put on to the men, the fact that they think that they will be, number one, totally migrant. They'll never be able to really get what they were thinking of as a quote-unquote return on investment here, yes. that they will be you know, really motivated strongly by their sexuality and be immoral and depraved. Yes. I'm an early modern historian. So as I read this, I'm much more used to seeing women being fashioned mm. in this sense with that anxiety over female sexuality mm-hmm. in much the same way that you're talking about the construction of male sexuality this way yes. in the late 19th and early 20th century in regards especially to foreign men. And I do have to wonder there if this is one of the ways in which the French state and French society is taking this commonly used trope of female sexuality that they have been able to control, and they're putting that kind of negative interpretation on these migrant men in much the (laughs) same way where it's something they have to control.
1: 100%. I also feel like Angela Davis would be proud of you because you're essentially pointing to like a form of equality without equity, if you will. It's sort of the expansion of these technologies of surveillance and policing and the invocation of all these moral fears that for so long have been trained uh, on women, right? I think John Scott has written extensively yeah. on sort of the political economy of, and, you know, the moral fears that are um, trained on 19th century working women and in a lot of ways, the story that I'm telling is how all those fears get fears get uh, outfitted to a modern industrial age that is reliant on an immigrant workforce comprised largely of men um, not yeah. entirely but largely um and uh, the ways in which like male sexuality just as female sexuality came under um, scrutiny in the 19th century and remains under scrutiny in different ways throughout the mm-hmm. 20th and probably 21st centuries um the ways that you see that expansion into male sexuality and if you'll if you'll allow me just one anecdote i guess it was three or four years ago my partner and I traveled to Argentina and, you know, Argentina, one of these other massive immigrant nation states, um, you know, one of the other major receiver countries along with the United States and France uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century. And I was reading this little um, know, some handout thing uh, about the, the birth of the tango as a dance. And they said um, something to the effect of, uh, well, in the, in the beginning days, in the in the early days in the early 20th century these poor migrant men they had to dance the tango with one another because there were no women oh, <laughs> how crazy is that thank goodness that women started to arrive and allowed them to have certain kinds of partners um you know that that you know so that the tango could become this i don't know heterosexual dancing form the way that it's supposed to be well i thought to myself well that's interesting because i, I and i think that this you know if i may take this also as a moment to point to where I think some of the really interesting future scholarship lies Mm -hmm. is uh, the emergence of these male homosocial and homosexual subcultures. Because in a lot of ways, migration provides a in this particular moment, an ideal avenue um, for men who harbor same sex desire because they are lodged together. There's tons about like the... um, you know the, the the developing industrial workforce and agricultural workforce, sort of the mm-hmm. ways in which the, these um, employment, uh, these labor recruitment organizations are housing men, are bringing them together. I mean, it is it is the ideal location for men who have these same sex desires and i i'd really love to see um you know some some more scholarship on that and you know to bring it back to the question that you asked like there is both the the moral and cultural fear associated with these things and then there's sort of the question of like well maybe they were picking up on something like what yeah. were they picking up on um and i think that that's a i think somehow if we can keep those two um those those two narratives in mind sort of the 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 moralist narrative, but also like the social history, like what's actually mm-hmm. happening on the ground. I think that that's, I think that's the really cool stuff.
0: Absolutely. I was thinking the entire time that you were talking about this male sexuality and this sort of homosocial or homosexual areas mm-hmm. of, and relationships, I was thinking number one, George Chauncey would love this. Yes, it's very, 100%. you know, it's very gay New York. It's yeah. very similar to very similar time periods. It's the exact same time period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that he's looking at and this really change of male sexuality yeah. that's happening um i was also thinking jeff merrick would absolutely yes. <laughs> love this avenue of of research of thinking about you know these men are experiencing an ability to get away from their families, yes. to get away from society, remake themselves yes. in many ways where, especially living among other men, you know, just like the tango dancers, they might be able to finally express themselves or find relationships um, that fulfill their sexual desires in this oh, way.
1: Totally, totally. And I mean, I think that's why the work of like Regina Kunzel on prisons, mm-hmm. um, Margot Canaday again. I mean, I am actually thinking that um she was looking at um, depression era um, like workhouses that similarly brought men to get yeah. Seth Coven's work on workhouses um, in in London. I mean all I think that there's a lot to go on here and I think like the, I think the question as you posed it is so, it's just so like, if you will, <laughs> to what extent does migration itself serve as an, provide opportunities mm-hmm. for folks whose sexualities are increasingly being coded as um, uh, uh, perverse, if you will, yeah. in, the, in the 20th century, right? And, and I, I think that is just um, enormously interesting.
0: And it adds an element there, I think, too, of of agency, which is something that you bring up quite often throughout the work, is this idea of framing men and women migrants as these different stereotypes, sometimes Mm -hmm. these immigrants can lean in to those stereotypes and they have the agency and the wherewithal to savvily negotiate some of these structures or policies or entities. And that that to me is one of the most interesting pieces is how women are supposed to be viewed by the French state as being victims as well as a stabilizing force for their family and for their communities. Yet they know how to use that to their advantage.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the argument. And I, I guess I would say uh, a f- I guess I would say a few things, and I'm not even sure what exactly are the things I'm going to say, so I can't <laughs> tell you how many there will be or in what order they will come out. But the first thing I would say is I think this is one of those moments when like, um, this, this is the meta argument for, <laughs> for recruiting diverse graduate students into your doctoral programs. It, I, I just want to say that like so often, you know, the tale is one of exclusion and oppression. And while that is not incorrect or entirely absent from like the moral arc or the immoral arc of history. You know, I grew up in a household, you know, surrounded by folks and communities where it's like, yeah, but they didn't just have things done to them. They fought Mm -hmm. back, they bargained, they negotiated, they used. They, you know, just as much as they were used, they used in turn. And in being used, that gave them an opportunity to use. And so I think that that's just like an, I don't know what is the word, that's just like a moral orientation towards the universe. Just, Just, just yeah. as much as folks wish to use us, we can use them back in return. So that's just the first thing I want to say.
0: <laughs> I, think, I think that definitely demonstrates, too, this, this multifaceted power dynamics yes. that you're really pointing at where yeah. immigrants are not necessarily, although the state hopes to oppress them, yes. there are ways in which that they can gain autonomy, that they can yes. gain agency, that they can gain authority within both the French state and their own communities, totally. both men and women alike.
1: Well, and I, I think that's the thing. is like they're being acted upon, but in being acted upon, they are then able to act as well, right? And yeah. I think right now, if you know, if you don't mind my saying, I sort of feel as though I use the terminology of agency because I just, I don't know, there's not much of a vocabulary out there for me to yeah. use. So agency seemed like the right word to use. I don't know. It had a very sort of like, it smacked of kind of the 80s, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Uh, it, it seemed to kind of fit the bill. But I, I think there's something else that I'm trying to point to. and. Uh, And this is kind of where there's a tension. So on the one hand, like if I could have written something about like the way immigrants understood themselves, which is to say like uh, immigrant subjectivities, immigrant identities, like that would have been amazing. However, I don't really think that that's a story that I am able to tell because of the sources that are available to me. Um, And in terms of the sources that are available to me, Gosh, there were moments when I thought to myself, this is the story. This is the pure, (laughs) unvarnished truth coming straight from like the horse's mouth, as it were, right? And Mm -hmm. I I remember experiencing that in particular when I was reading certain social worker files or like court cases. But the thing is that that's not true, that there is some sort of a bureaucratic intermediary or interlocutor Mm -hmm. that is mediating the voice of. I will always call them my immigrants, <laughs> the voice of my immigrants <laughs> through the source, and um, and you know there's subaltern studies reading against the grain, and that's why I'm, I think I'm still able to kind of you know pick up on what it is that immigrants are doing and saying. But I think more often than not, I, I feel like the, the most truthful statement that I can come to, and I and it's not something that I it's something that I allude to a lot more, and I I want to say chapters two and three and three especially, mm-hmm. is that you start to see what I can only call kind of the construction of bureaucratic forms of identity. And it's sort of, it's this both and like, there's clearly like, there's clearly immigrant experiences as just a sociological reality as a sociological fact, like immigrants, exist. They are people, they have their different identities that are raced and gendered and all this other stuff. Right. But I, you know, but it's being mediated. And so what happens is, um, you know, the laws and official like uh, ways of practice, they have been constructed around seeing particular types, particular archetypes. Right. And I think insofar as immigrants themselves are able to lean in, I think that they are able to render themselves most visible when they are able to lean into those French mm-hmm. archetypes. So, again, the abusives, you know, if, a, if an immigrant woman is able to portray herself as vulnerable, as, um, you know, deserted, as abandoned, right, as having been abused. And, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into sort of the moral gray area there, um, because there are, again, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these simply were. The, their lived reality the lived reality of so many immigrant women and that is we one needs to we also you know that's not to negate the fact that the law was constructed to see women in those ways too so there's an interaction happening there there is a back and forth there is a negotiation and while I may not ever be able to exactly speak to that mm-hmm. negotiation I, I think that I, I try to render it visible to some extent absolutely i I really appreciate what you said too in
0: terms of you use the terms agency and sort of this agentive view because we're, we're really lost yeah. in terms of vocabulary or a framework that better articulates these ideas. And certainly – the concept of agency is incredibly fraught yeah. among you know gender historians i'm i'm a historian of childhood and youth we we often talk about that exact same type of fraught agency are these are these individuals that we're looking at truly able to possess agency what does that even mean but what you're articulating here is that savvy negotiation mm-hmm. of individuals to work within this framework and this constructing yes. of the french state and french society and their own yeah. communities too
1: yeah, I mean, I sometimes think about it in terms of Mary Lou Roberts' work on like the new woman who was a, a kind of new woman in fantasy of France, right? And the conversation turns around, oh well, you know, she she hers was a politics of beauty, and is that real agency? Because like beauty is constructed through like mm-hmm. reinforcement, sexist and patriarchal, blah, blah. And it's like yes. Yes, yes, yes. But also, like when you, when these are the only tools you have available, you get to use them too. And I think, I think you're pointing to something, which is like we're kind of trapped between like identities and agency. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like that's kind of where we're situated right now. And everybody. Everyone's like, identities and agency don't matter because of structuralism and like the structures of lives. And then those people are like, oh, well, but you know, that flattens distinctions of agency and identity and whatnot. So (laughs) I I just feel like we're we're kind of caught in between. And so the best I could think of was to try to do both at the same time in this book. And I Um, think that's
0: incredibly successful for those who are looking for some inspiration of how do I work between this rock and a hard place, between agency and structuralism and identity here. You've you've navigated this yourself quite well in providing this really testimonial experience of these individuals while considering the larger structural elements that are around them.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was definitely the hope. Um, and I again I think here I took like Emmanuel Sada's work to be um mm-hmm. just like just a huge influence on me. Same with Rachel Fuchs, especially her contested paternity. Um yeah. just being able to understand like Yes, there are absolutely structural conditions um, that we call law or policy or whatever naturalization um, legislation. Like there are absolutely those um, structural conditions within which all of us mu- must live our lives, and there are these and there are these wins that we still can get on occasion, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And that's that to me is that's the cool story. That's the fun story.
0: And I think that
1: this comes up very
0: clearly in chapters 5, 6, and 7, where you actually move to discuss space yeah. and spatial um, – not spatial awareness, but the inf- influence of space upon people's identities, their power, their agency. This to me was such an interesting study of Paris as a space, of neighborhoods Mm -hmm. as a space, as a rural community as a space, and also the apartment building as a space where immigrant women could really establish themselves in, I I think, two ways. First, as somebody who is worthy of state assistance Mm -hmm. and state intervention through social workers and state programs of the welfare state. But also adds leaders within their own community, and some of these women were able to be the conduits between people from similar ethnic or national backgrounds that had come to France to interact with the Société Générale or some of the larger French um, bureaucracies during this time too.
1: Yeah, I think so. It's it's funny that you should mention so, especially chapters. I'm going to say five and six. So. you know, in some ways, they're the brainchild of a previous project, which is to say the dissertation. And at the time, mm. with the dissertation, I was really interested in the kinds of things that all social histories are, uh, social histories of immigration are interested in, which is like, when, how, when, where, how and why did like immigrants assimilate, or acculturate or integrate or whatever you want to say. And so in the beginning, that was sort of the that, that was sort of the, the central kind of lens. And then I, I, I think to some extent, I found those questions kind of like less interesting because over mm-hmm. and over again, like all the social histories of immigration are like, and then they assimilated. <laughs> like, like that's <laughs> what happens, right? And we all know that it's just a thing that happens by the second generation. Um, you know, again, Gene Beeman's work most recently on Citizen Outsider shows that that's absolutely not the case. And like the story of how and when it came to be that reproductive civic criteria for citizenship was no longer enough is absolutely an Important story to tell. Um, But all the social histories that I was reading were like, okay, and then it happens by the second generation. So, you know, as I was sort of transforming the project into the book, I think the more the way that I sort of updated that question was to think like, okay, well, you know, chapters one through four, in a lot of ways, they talk about um, the sort of reproductive citizenship as it is essentially forged. I wouldn't say on high, I would say kind of like in the middle by all mm-hmm. those bureaucrats, by those right. that engagement between immigrants and bureaucrats, like that's how it's kind of forged in the middle, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what I was really interested in is like, well, you know, to what extent though is reproductive citizenship also a lived experience yeah. on the ground in the neighborhood, right? And, you know, I... I, I I think that there is sort of that outstanding question of like, to what extent were French people properly indoctrinated into like populationism? And the the evidence there is like super mixed, especially when you become, when you move into Paris and working class Paris, still less, you know, all those working class Parisians, they like were not having children. (laughs) They were like, no thank you. Right. So I, I, I guess sort of, you know, I started to look at the space of the neighborhood and start to think about like in what ways are like sex and gender and like reproduction in what ways are they coded into the space of the neighborhood and to what extent do like Parisians themselves play into that. And, and once I started asking the question in that way, I think I was able to like, I think I found some really interesting answers. Um, uh, and a lot of it had to do once again with mobility. How is it that foreigners, that immigrants move through the neighborhood? How is it that they move through these different quartiers, these different like working class neighborhoods of Paris? And you know, one day I would love to be able to tell how a story of how like Saint Marguerite and La Roquette, they look so different, Yeah. From places like in the 18th arrondissement that had this extremely high proportion of single, unattached immigrant men, and going back to a previous question we were talking about, um, those those garni, those like immigrant, those those working, um, those boarding houses for working men, that immigrant men were so disproportionately represented in. You know that is that's a very different. That's going to be a much more rough and tumble working class, like proletarian working class, not artisanal working class milieu versus like the 16th arrondissement, um, where you have huge numbers, well, okay, well huge within reason, of immigrant <laughs> women, particularly from Belgium and Luxembourg and Switzerland who are there as live-in domestics to all of these like well-to-do immigrant families um, and there which means that you know their housing structures look super different as well. And like I, I just think that that's a really I think that that's a really interesting story that can kind of, like that can kind of only arise through, like, a comparative, you know, a comparative storytelling, um, like, methodology.
0: Well, and I think it has so much legacies even to the current day mm. as well, right? Where we still even see in, in Paris or in certain yeah. rural or provincial cities, you know, the settlement of immigrant workers mm. and, and immigrants at large are yeah. in some of these same places and some of these same
1: enclaves. And it's, as you said, it's inscribed into the geography of the city itself, yeah. right? And it's sort of this, it's kind of this both and. And here I'm kind of thinking about like Andrew Ross's book on public city, public sex, the way that like the city gives rise also to certain, yeah. to certain forms of like belonging and unbelonging, right? Um, and like what are those features of the urban landscape that allow for um, certain kinds of belonging and unbelonging? And for, you know, for these neighborhoods, it's the apartment building. Really, mm-hmm. that allows for a certain form of belonging, familial belonging. And also, you know, that you see also like the neighborhood kind of knit together against those people who, who, you know, those, those immigrant passers through and itinerants that aren't really there for the long haul. Right? Like, right. Um, if you're not there for the long haul, they're not really interested in you either. (laughs) So I think, you know, that's interesting too. There's, there's so much work that's been done around, um, you know, especially around like race and religion and those sorts Mm -hmm. of things. But, you know, what about things like itinerance and, um, permanence, right? Like the, those sorts of, you know, from my perspective, societal or social embeddedness really kind of turned around those questions, right? Yeah. So that you see disciplinary paternalism, supportive maternalism, which are those twin state logics, you see them embedded also in the social, like the the, the very urban fabric of the neighborhood. They're, they're yeah. social logics too. Um, so yeah. Well,
0: and that's a way too that we think about those ideas of the French state of thinking of women as being those, those settlers and yeah. those ones who are kind of controlling and digging the roots out for these families and these communities, they've really internalized that in many ways against some of the other more itinerant workers or the short-term workers who are just coming in and and leaving later on. It's interesting to see, again, that agency, whether conscious or unconscious, of making those decisions of identifying, you know, Immigrant French individuals versus immigrant French individuals who are only here for a short period of time. The other na- the othering yeah. of yeah. individuals who might be considered other from other French people too.
1: Well, and I, I mean, I think that's why uh, that's why I like uh, that's why you know those two chapters five and six. I I just really like how we're able to kind of think about those 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 state logics as social yeah. logics because you know at the end of the day it makes, it's just a common sense social logic in a lot uh-huh. of ways. Like if you are, if you are a community, you can't, you can't really exist as a community. If people are here today, gone tomorrow, right? Like right. in order to knit together as a community, like you need to, you need to know that folks are there, are in it for the long haul, right? Which is yeah. why spaces of impermanence, things like gami and like hotels and those sorts of things, like they're, you know, they don't like them in family neighborhoods. Right. And I mean, those are the, those are the kinds of questions that, um, that you also see sort of playing out in today's world too. I I think they just Mm -hmm. did that survey about like, Hey, suburban women, how do you feel about apartment buildings being constructed in your neighborhood? You know, those questions are also extremely raced and gendered and sexed and all those other things. So like those continue to be, um, you know, those, I do think that that continues to be sort of like a, a social logic that we see Um, determine who are ultimately our insiders and outsiders at an even more local level, like not just in the nation, but at an even more local level besides um, in today's world.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you a a little bit about race, Mm -hmm. because this is certainly an issue that you deal with in several of these chapters that really complicates our understanding of immigration, gender, family construction, all all of this, the spaces that individuals are able to occupy. Um, You know, you explore this in ways in which sometimes, quote, gender and family norm transcend racial, ethnic, or religious differences among French and foreign born. That statement surprised me in many ways of what I know about 19th century French understandings and constructions of race and racial policies and racial politics. And I wondered if you could talk about race a little bit more in the ways in which this is negotiated either by sort of those intermediaries or individuals
1: themselves. Yeah yeah i so i would say that's the million dollar question and if there's one thing that i got hit on over and over again throughout this project it was this question of race and mm-hmm. um and you know i guess i would say two things um one is I was, you know, I felt very much like I'm, I'm just don't shoot the messenger. I'm reporting what I'm finding, you know, (laughs) and i was just as surprised as anyone else to be finding the stuff that I found because as you so aptly point out, it flies in the face of all conventional wisdom. It flies in the face of a lot of common sense wisdom too. Um, if we are looking, If we are looking back on that period through our lens, our lens where we absolutely know that in places like that throughout Europe, throughout the United States, that the boundaries of who's in and who's out have absolutely hardened around this question of race and to some extent religion insofar as religion has been ethnicized in places like France and the U.S. Mm -hmm. as a result of Islamophobia, etc., right? So, yeah, I I was just as shocked as anyone else. And yet I was reporting exactly what I continued to find in the archives. And to me, to my mind, the reason why we are seeing what we are seeing is, once again, that populationist context, right? And I'm not the Mm -hmm. first one to point this out. Actually, Emmanuel Sada, again, in her own work about the construction of the as both a legal legal category, responding to a sociological, you know, Reality, um, uh, both so a legal construction responding to a sociological reality. She also points out that in this interwar period, you de- you do see this kind of softening around race as a category, which is to say a softening of um, race, not to say racist, but yeah, racist um, sort of criteria in terms of who gets to be in and who gets to be out right. of the nation state. And you know, I I guess what I try to add to this is a few things. Um, the first being that, well, to some extent that, you know, if, if we're looking at everything backwards through the prism of race, then this makes no sense. But if we're looking at this through the prism of gender and sexuality, that is precisely one of those shocking, surprising findings that actually looks a little less shocking and surprising. Like, you know, beggars can't be choosers, if you will. And so the French nation needed bodies it needed people. And while there have been a lot of really impressive studies about the discursive dimensions of the nation state and the national community wherein absolutely all kinds of borders were erected, particularly borders around race during this period. On the ground, what was happening, we see something completely different. Okay, maybe not completely different. Maybe I'm pushing it too far. (laughs) That's the other thing I would say, right? That it's not as though suddenly racism disappears and they're like, you know, uh, and and that French bureaucrats are like, oh, this is amazing. So excited to have all of these French colonial subjects enter our nation. (laughs) That's not what's happening. What's happening is it's more of an aw crap, if you will. It's like, okay, right. well, you know, we needed them because we didn't have soldiers and we didn't have laborers. And we tried as hard as we could to keep them separated from our white French women. And ah shucks, it absolutely didn't work. And now here they've gone impregnating all these women, um, you know, that we have all of these, um, these mixed race children on French soil. Uh, and some of them are even quite embedded in these local, like, Provincial communities. What are we going to do? And they had two options. They could either go the route of Nazi Germany slash America, which is to say that they could have forcibly repatriated um, all colonial subjects, including those that had built up these sort of romantic and intimate and filial ties, right? right? And they opted not to do that. Instead, what they did is they they forced a lot of these men uh, to remain and to caretake for um, the children that they had that they had. With these white French women, right? And yeah. I think the, I think what I'm trying to say there is that, you know, inclusion inclusion can be forcible too, and you mm-hmm. see that most clearly when it comes to non-white men over and over and over again, right? No one's doing anything out of the goodness of their heart here, and I want to be really clear about that in terms yeah. of the, the statement of this book. French people aren't doing any of this stuff out of the goodness of their heart. They are they are building a state around immigrants some of whom they decide are insiders, some of whom they decide are outsiders, and they are forced into this predicament because they don't have enough of their own citizens to go Mm -hmm. around. So that's where all of this is coming from, right? I think what's
0: very poignant about that too is you see the ways in which people understand that race is socially constructed, Right, the meanings ascribed to colonial status or to non-white is totally constructed in this way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I I think you see some of that construction also happening um, in the neighborhoods themselves. Like in chapters five and six, you see that men across like colonial and non-colonial statuses, like they're hanging out with each other on a Friday night because they work together. And that's how like homosocial sociability, that's what it looks like in these Mm -hmm. neighborhoods, right? Um, There are occasions when, uh, you know, the community rallies around a North African father as opposed to the white French mother because he does a better job of abiding by certain gendered criteria of what it means right. to be a quote unquote good father than she does in abiding by the criteria that these working class communities have deemed make for a good mother. And so, you know, I, th- I think that's another moment where you see, again, like the social construction of race kind of on the ground um, yeah. where it's it can be mitigated by these other uh, concerns that have everything to do with gender, with sexuality, and like with reproduction of re- reproductive sexuality and what that means, uh, really motherhood and fatherhood.
0: Well, and there's so much complexity and nuance within the lived experience of all of this too, which is what I'm hearing you saying yeah, as yeah. well, is that it's not just the kind of the prescription and then very clear delineation. Yeah. It's very complicated. It's very nuanced. It
1: can be negotiated in different ways. 100% and I, you know and I think that's where I really owe it that's where I'm standing on the work of giants like I'm thinking again of folks like Noriel or you know Elisa Camisholi's work which is like an amazing job talking about what pronatalists want what legislators or parliamentarians what they want to see happen, right? Yeah. The employers, um, these different treatises that that they create that create these distinctions between, you know, that she does an amazing job of showing like white racialization during this period. Um, and I think that those are all like really important dimensions of this story within which like my story that I write kind of plays out. Like if we now know sort of the discursive dimensions, if we now know the legal dimensions, the political dimensions, what we still... Like, if we know everything from on high, we still don't know anything. We don't know anything from in the middle. And I think right. that it's that in the middle um, that the book is trying to grapple with. And to your point, it just... it gets. It gets messy, but it gets messy in what I think is kind of a produ- productive and exciting way because yeah. it upends a lot of the traditional orthodoxies in the field. And one of the main ones is that, um, it, you know, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying that France and French people aren't racist during this period. Right. They absolutely are. It's just that like they're, you know, their they're, they're, they're eyes are on the prize and the prize yeah. is rebuilding this population. And so, you know... If that's if that's a story, you're caught between a rock and a hard place. You're caught between your racism and your desire for reproduction. And what I'm t- saying is that between 1880 and 1945, it was the repro- it was the impulse, it was the edict for reproduction that won the day.
0: Yeah, I I wonder how this before before we got on to the recording, you and I were talking a little bit about what are the different directions that studies like this could take mm-hmm. and. One of the avenues that you were talking about was the ideas of this type of reproductive citizenship in the colonies themselves and the sort of rescinding of what it means to be a citizen. And I wondered if you could talk about that because I think that this relates strongly to these ideas of race and perhaps France at certain points in time turning a more blind eye towards race than to some other characteristics
1: absolutely well so and I and I sort of faintly gesture at this well it's not that faint I'm pretty <laughs> I'm pretty direct <laughs> about this in the conclusion um, I I see from my perspective I see three really exciting directions that I wanna that I want to see the field go in and one I've already alluded to which is I want to see more, really excellent quality work done around sexuality and immigration. Um, I think that that is just such a fruitful, mm-hmm. uh, that's just a, such an amazing avenue that this could go in. And I, and I want to see a lot of work done on that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I want to see uh, more work done on something that I'm kind of just lightly attentive to throughout the book, which is sort of the ways in which white French femininity is often at odds with Um, sort of non-white masculinity, if you will, especially in the bodies of colonial subjects. And again, I think that the sort of like discursive terrain around that, um, or, you know, those depictions, those invocations of white femininity, I think that we have, uh, you know, we have a lot of good work on that. But I want to see the ways in which white French women themselves drew on raced, sexed and classed um, notions of difference to themselves, um, you know, help create co-create systems of racist, uh, just racist systems in France, like especially systems of racist violence, particularly through policing and the police state. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's a a story that absolutely needs to be told in France, uh, if for no other reason than, I mean, it's, it's just, it just, it needs to be told that story. Yes. Um. And then finally, uh, yes, uh, having to do with this question around race. So I think, you know, as I was sort of coming and I alluded to this, like in that opening question that you asked me about, um, you know, how did this story come to be, you know, as I was writing even just the last chapter of this book after as I was writing chapter 7 and chapter seven it you know again it kind of puts all that stuff that I have elaborated in the preceding chapters which is to say all that Republican criteria for you know what it takes to be a good reproductive citizen for yeah. men and for women um, all that stuff around um, so, sort of the neighborly networks and how they coalesce around gender and sex right all that stuff gets put to the test um, during World War two under the occupation Occupation by Vichy, mm-hmm. um, and I have to look at oh, of course, and also all of that welfare, welfareism, welfare as a profoundly local experience um, that is predominantly run a, a, a parastate realm that is predominantly run by women. Um, yeah. For women, right, as mothers, um, as heads of families, so all that stuff—that's what Chapter Seven elaborates. One of the findings, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've known for a long time is that, uh, like, more Jews survived. Uh, In France than anywhere else in occupied Europe. So the question is, how is that possible? And there's been a few different ideas. And so this chapter sort of, it's like, Oh, well, here's why. (laughs) And then the second thing, um, one of the newer historiographical questions um, to be raised is, and also Jewish children survived in like these, like really high rates as compared To the rest of occupied France. How is that possible? So here I am in 2018, it's like March, April, May, and I'm writing this chapter. And one of the things I find um, is that uh, these welfare workers, these assistants social, they are hiding Jewish children, Jewish immigrant children, in these institutions of the state, like all these orphanages and like just all of these different spaces that the Third Republic has steadily created um, since, you know, 1870, because they have just been so obsessed and gripped with this specter of depopulation and they need these kids to survive. This yeah. weird thing happens under Vichy where the welfare agents, these women, they use the tools of the Republic against the state. Um, which is to mm-hmm. say that the state is viciously anti-Semitic, viciously murderous. And yet so many of these children survive because these women are able to use the sort of, you know, Republican infrastructure, yeah. ch- you know, ch- of childcare against the state. And so I'm saying all this because, um, you know, I'm I'm writing this at the exact same time that in the United States, children are being caged. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as the book comes out now, you know, if you look at the last couple of sentences, um, you know, I refer to this case study by Francoise Vergès, who is looking at um, the news that broke in 1970, that non-white women in the former slave colony of Réunion, that they were forcibly sterilized by white French doctors. And, yeah. and here my book is coming out at precisely a moment when we are learning that similar things have transpired in the U.S. and immigration detention centers, right? Yeah. Um, and just all, this year. Just this year, just two weeks ago as of yeah. the taping of this. Um, and so for me, this calls into question, like uh, this touches on questions of reproduction and race and how yeah. it is that we define the insiders versus the outsiders in our nation state, right? And for me, that's the third major area um, for where, where I'd love to see the scholarship go. You know, again, folks like Emmanuel Sada, Verges, so many others have shown Um, the ways that, like, race as a category, reproduction, families, um, the way that that stuff operates out there in the empire. I -hmm. think it's still an outstanding question, thinking about how reproductive criteria for citizenship, like, there's no doubt in my mind that it gets eroded at as a result of the ebbing of depopulate, of populationist angst, or as I call it in the book. it doesn't really go away. It just gets kind of displaced onto non-white bodies, especially against the background of really violent wars of decolonization when the French nation state is beginning to, you know, reconsolidate, if you will, no longer as greater France, AKA an imperial nation state, but Mm -hmm. as metropolitan France, the hexagon and only that, right? Um, So there's there's also like a territorial redefinition of what France is. And that's really different from all of the before 1945 stuff. Right. So what I want to see is I would love to see a study of like when, how, um, and to what extent the reproductive criteria thesis makes sense in France in the decades after 1945, when there's still, you know, there's still a population is there's still a population crisis. Like that doesn't really go away until the sixties and seventies. Right. Um, So I I think that there's something really critical happening in that period. And Amelia Lyons has done work on Algerian women in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm curious about, you know, welfare provisioning of all the different immigrant women, white and non-white, because non-white women begin to appear in much more significant numbers after the Second World War. Right. Um, And and I think that that's a really important story to tell. Um, And I'm really eager to see to see that work. I, I think it is a
0: very poignant way that you end your book with, with this story of the forced sterilizations and the ways in which the French state, as, as you just spoke about, there's something changing there with race and the understanding of reproductive capabilities of non-white women versus white women. And I think that this is, that that conclusion is a great example of why not only historians of France will consider this a must read, but any historian of immigration or race or changing identities will find a big benefit of reading this book to really provide a parallel, even to the current day that we are living in and the ways in which we are dealing with race. And oftentimes the state is dealing with race, sometimes in hidden or nefarious ways.
1: Absolutely, yeah I think again Ver's work on the wombs of women you know she she points to this contrast as well the ways in which births are forwarded or you know propagated are encouraged in the metropole um, in ways that they' are absolutely not outside of the metropole in the you know in the dom tom uh, which is to say the former empire the, the neo Empire um, and I you know I think she points to the fact that in you know when the na- nation states, is located in the wombs of women. You're going to have a problem like that. That's just okay. that's basically that's basically her bottom line, and it's hard to it's hard to argue with something like that. Um, and and I don't argue with it. And I and I think that to some extent my work offers kind of that missing link. Um, mm-hmm. That I think it's the kind of work that needed to be done. And what I hope is that I'm not engaging in in just gap filling. What I hope I'm doing is I'm also prompting us to think more critically about the ways that, again, gender, sex, and sexuality, the ways that they started to undermine or map onto or work at odds with um, the other criteria that we know absolutely became more and more important after the Second World War, race, ethnicity, religion. Um, and the ways in which certain populationist fixes for how to grow a population fell out of favor um, in, you know, and were substituted by uh, you know, other kinds of pronatalist, which is to say pronatalist, like more far right, right wing, ethnicized yeah. versions of what a nation can and should be. Um, and I think all of it just points to the dilemma of modern nation states right now, which is that we've all decided that we choose who is inside and who's out based on um, based on the wombs of women. <laughs> uh, and un- until those two things are delinked, we're going to have a problem.
0: I don't know that I could provide a better pitch for your book than what you just did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. If you are interested in purchasing a copy of Reproductive Citizens, Gender, Immigration in the State in Modern France, please visit Cornell University Press's website. Again, thank you so much. This is such a poignant work and such an important work at this period um, in history about the history of immigration, race, and gender. Thank you so much. This has been
1: so much fun. Thank you.